Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum... Michael Lewis, author of Moneyball and the Big Short, has applied his talent for breaking down complex systems and finding the heroes to the pandemic. In his new book, The Premonition, Lewis profiles people who saw the dangers of COVID-19 early, including a California public health official, but faced hurdle after hurdle trying to get people in power to respond. We'll talk with Lewis about how the pandemic exploited some of America's worst instincts, including waiting until it's politically convenient to act. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. When word began to emerge that a virus was circulating in Wuhan, There were people in the U.S. who had a sense of the virus's real dangers. These are some of the people Michael Lewis profiles in his new book, The Premonition. But what unfolds as they try to sound the alarm is a story of missed opportunities, bureaucratic red tape, and officials failing to act. As of this month, 579,000 Americans have died of COVID-19. Michael Lewis, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Nina. You know, when I was reading your book and I started recounting the early days of the pandemic, I remember pausing for a moment because I wasn't even sure I was ready to read it (laughs) because it was just this terrible time, this terrible sense of foreboding that we couldn't quite put our finger on. And also the fact that the pandemic isn't over yet. How did you balance all of that as you were trying to write this in real time? It actually... It wasn't that difficult because of the nature of the story I was telling. I mean, the the book doesn't even get to the pandemic until about page 180. Right. <laughs> so, so it's it was- all the, the backstory was to me, uh, you know, the, the, that was the first thing that really attracted me to the story, the, the, uh, the, 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 the lead up to it, because you could see the seeds of the response in what had come before. And, and the, you know, I, my stories are highly dependent on characters. And once I saw who I thought were the most important characters to write the story through, it became, it became really clear that their, their story in relation to this pandemic ended about June. Uh, because by June of last year, the, the, they could tell you kind of roughly how many Americans were going to die. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, 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 and they could tell you that the response had been this catastrophic failure. And they could tell you that they really didn't have a further role to play in this one. They, their role was in the next one. Wow. So, so that the, the story was going to end naturally when they walked off stage. Uh, and so that, so, but, but you make a, you make a fair point. 
there was this other thing going on that it, the pandemic, you didn't know quite what was going to happen in, in they did, but I didn't uh, in the pandemic. But I, I, I did think that, that for the, for the book I was writing, um, a lot of the steam was going to vanish from the story after about June. And so that, that really wasn't, that was for some, the, the rest of that was for someone else to write. Hmm. Well, one of the people who, you talk about and who figures prominently in your book is Dr. Charity Dean, Assistant Director of California's Department of Public Health at the time. Can you take us back to January of 2020 when what we were hearing from Wuhan was confusing, unclear, and what the CDC was telling us then as well? Sure. Um, The CDC was saying that it didn't present a threat to Americans. And at that same time, Charity, 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 who had been the local health officer for Santa Barbara County and had bounced up to the state and had been briefly the chief health officer for the state and then had been not given that job by the new Newsom administration. She was she was number two. She she had a sense. Um, there are two there are two charity stories. <laughs> there is the there's the mystical one, which we can get into. But the practical one, which is looking at data from Wuhan. And the and by kind of mid January is intensely disturbed by what she's seeing and is starting to sort of map out math on a on a whiteboard uh, to sort of project what disease spread is going to look like in Cal- in the state of California and start starting to develop a plan and she is met by kind of fierce resistance from her own boss and her own department that she is. She's told she's not to use the word pandemic. She's told to erase her whiteboard and not scare people with all this talk. And she, she's in a, so she for for a stretch, she's the crazy person. And the 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 thing that um, alleviates that feeling in her is when she is connected up with another main character of the book, a, a group of doctors who had actually kind of invented pandemic planning in this country who had done a lot of math in, in a lot of kind of curious investigation of what, had, what was going on in China and had a real bead on both the transmissibility and the lethality of the virus by kind of January 20th, and it, which just syncs up with her understanding of what's going on. And this group that you're talking about was called the Wolverines. It was this like, I think as you describe it, a guerrilla disease fighting group who was looking at data as well and seeing some of the same things that she was worried about she was worried that if nothing happened we would see 20 million cases in california by may they were looking broadly at the country and trying to do their own projections as well before we get into specifically what uh, the wolverines were doing could you just remind us about what the CDC was doing. So talk about what happened when the U.S. brought Americans back from Wuhan. Yeah, so um, the Wolverines were a group of seven doctors, all of whom had worked together in either the Bush or Obama White House. And one of these, uh, one of them is a fellow named James Lawler, who runs a medical center in Omaha, a federal medical center, to which people with strange and alarming communicable diseases are brought uh, to, to, to treat them and also to understand them. So the Ebola patients went there. So Lawler is on the receiving end of the repatriated Americans from Wuhan. 
they are being they're kept just outside of Omaha at a national, I think a National Guard barracks. And he wants to test them for for COVID because um, because, well, one, nobody knows quite what the incubation period is. You know, they, they may have been tested when they got on the plane when they left Wuhan, but they could have tested negative and, and still had it. And there were enough of them that, you know, I can't remember what it was, 60 of them or there were a bunch of them yeah. Uh, yeah. that he was certain that that some some of them would test positive. And these these the, these Americans um, all wanted to be tested. And so but Lawler had to ask the CDC for permission to test them. And he, in, when he asked him, he said there were the the. It created a consternation in the CDC, and the request went all the way up to Robert Redfield, who was the director of the CDC under Trump. And Redfield, it came back from Redfield that he was not allowed to test them because to test them would be tantamount to performing experiments on imprisoned persons. Uh, and and Lawler was, of course, enraged, but also perplexed. Like, why don't they want to test them? And the question he's, there's never really, I don't answer it. You know, you can speculate. But one answer was they didn't want to find it because finding it would would raise alarm. Uh, The the Trump and and the the Trump administration was behind that. Another answer is they didn't have a test that worked uh, or they weren't sure their test worked. No, I, I don't quite know why they did that. But it was of a piece with um, other, with not just their actions in COVID, but actions that uh, before COVID, where where they they were reluctant to engage on the battlefield in a way that was going to create a stir. Um, and it was it, the amazing thing is that story uh, of of them not testing these repatriated Americans just never got told at the time it's just sh- it's a shocking thing yes and i mean there were so many issues with the testing right i mean the cdc was supposed to develop a test there was a test that was available from the world health organization that nobody was using i mean it, it was so perplexing to so many people and as you say you don't quite answer the question but you lay out what is so perplexing and of course this group the wolverines that lawler is part of and these six other doctors are watching this unfold and what do they try to do to try to get the institution like the CDC or the White House to understand what's really going on. Yeah, this is, I think of this story as, as a story about a, a, a group, several extraordinary people who are operating in a really dysfunctional system and the things they try to do and the responses they get sort of describe the system. And um, what they try to do is once they, re- once first they, first they're trying to broach issues with the CDC directly and with the White House directly. They have some personal connections. They've all worked in the White House. Carter Mesher, who is a kind of at the center of the group of the Wolverines. I mean, this is like a this is a footnote to history and a, and a counterfactual to imagine. It, in, when Trump took office in the in the White House, he had as his uh, director of Homeland Security, a man named Tom Bossert, who had been in the Bush White House and watched my characters invent pandemic planning and and were it, it just he was just in awe of them. And one of the first things Bossert did back in 2017 was call Carter Mesher and Richard Hatchett, the other doctor involved, and, and say, I want to badge you into the White House now in case there's a pandemic and so you can come run it. And Bossert was fired by John Bolton a year before the pandemic. And, and with that, these guys were kind of severed from the from officialdom. So what they do 
is they once they realize that the the federal government is not going to lead where they they just this is going to be this inaction and Trump makes it pretty clear by saying to the governors more or less you're on your own uh, love to help you but we are you're on your own they they start to reach out to any personal connections they have at the state level and you can actually map the US early response uh to uh to the to the pandemic onto the social relationships of the Wolverines they were close with um the governor of Ohio they had an in there through their health, the health director in Ohio they were close to the governor of Maryland uh through one of them worked with the governor of Maryland and they were close to the to California through charity d and those are the three states that that uh shut down first and do you think that there is a direct connection between Charity Dean's involvement with the Wolverines and the fact that California became the first state to issue a statewide lockdown? So it doesn't much matter what I think, but the people who were close to it do think absolutely think so. And this is the this was the mechanism. And this tells you kind of how arbitrarily it was all run. Um, the the that the, the um, Charity Dean was was roped in to providing the assumptions in the model that Gavin Newsom used to make the decision and those assumptions came directly from Carter Mesher's emails so yes well we'll dig into more with Michael Lewis after the break but in the meantime would love to hear from you listeners your reactions to what you're hearing about the story that Michael Lewis has told in his new book The Premonition a Pandemic Story has your faith in our public health system been shaken at all by the federal COVID response over this past year? And when you think about those early days, what do you remember most? 866-733-6786 is the number to call. 866-733-6786. Email us, forum at kqbd.org, or get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQBD Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Stay with us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the federal government and CDC's response to the pandemic's early days with Michael Lewis, author of the new book, The Premonition, A Pandemic Story. His other books include The Fifth Risk, The Blind Side, Moneyball, and The Big Short. And his podcast is Against the Rules with Michael Lewis. We're asking you, our listeners, what you remember about the early days of the pandemic. What do you remember feeling? What do you wish the government had done differently? Call us 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. Get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Email us forum at kqed.org. And this listener writes, I felt disbelief, a surreal feeling of whether this was real or not. I mean, it was really hard to feel like this was, uh, to to really put your finger on whether this was real or not. Um Michael Lewis, because you were hearing the president say things like, especially when the first case came to the U.S., that this was one person from China, we have it all under control, everything was going to be okay. And actually, I think the first time that people really started to think that, oh, no, this is this is inevitable, was when the CDC's Nancy Messonnier said, 
it was inevitable. And at that time, there was such relief to have somebody say, this is going to happen here. Uh, but you really tell the story behind getting to that point and really question whether Messonnier deserved sort of all the, the gratitude she got for, for saying it straight up. Because of when she said it. Uh, I mean, world authorities on the subject would have were, were shouting at them to, to say that a month earlier. And if by the time and the and if you this so this isn't again, this isn't me talking, this is my characters talking. And you, if you ask Charity Dean, who had a beat on this thing early, what her feelings are about Nancy Massonier standing up in at the end of February and saying, it's too late, it's already here. She, 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 her feelings are, you never gave us a chance to contain it. That you went from, you went from, it's not a threat to American lives to too late, it's already here without, without stopping at the intermediate place of, oh, we can stop this thing. They never tried. And, um, and so it disturbed her greatly. Now, and having said that, you know, this, that, you know, it's a complicated story. This, the C, the CDC, like, I mean, it's a politicized, it's become a more and more politicized institution mm -hmm. over the decades. And Nancy Messier really, there's a limit to what she can do in, in alienating the White House. Uh, and the minute she did that, she got slapped around by Donald Trump and you never heard from him again. Uh, so there, I feel some sympathy for the position she was in personally, but it's distressing to see the institution that's called the Centers for Disease Control essentially be incapable of controlling disease uh, <laughs> and, and, and basically throwing up their hands in the face of a disease control situation and saying, you know, there was nothing we could do. Um, it, it, so so you, get, you get from my characters a kind of um, uh, disappointment in the institution, even, even, even when you build in Nancy Messonnier's little speech on February the 23rd. D disappointment seems like a, a kind way to put it. In addition to kind of Charity D knowing that that's probably the reaction that she would get from the CDC because of previous experience with them, which well, is, so, that, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, so I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but uh, we're not in the studio together, so it's hard to know when you're going to talk, <laughs> when I'm going to talk. But, 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 Welcome to pandemic but, uh, broadcasting, yeah. Yes, so, but, but this is, to me, this is why the, the, the story of these characters before the pandemic is so interesting because you see a, you sense the kind of tragic inevitability of what's about to happen. Yeah. Charity, the story of Charity Dean as a local public health officer um, that opens the the stories that open the book to me are just they take your breath away because for a couple of reasons. One, it's shocking just how brave she has to be to do her job. She has no cover from above when she is shutting down a tuberculosis outbreak or, a, or shutting down a clinic because it's spreading hepatitis uh, C or, or, or uh, closing parts of the UCSB campus because, because there's a meningococcal outbreak, that she's on her own because, because the CDC won't engage until there's total certainty about the threat. And by the time there's total certainty about a, th a disease threat, it's too late. So she is essentially fighting a battle with not a, not a fellow battlefield commander, much less a general, but with a kind of academic institution that's sitting on her shoulder, ready to kind of end her career if she makes a mistake. 
And by three or four years into her job, she banned the CDC from her, her communicable disease investigations because they just got in the way. And you read these stories and you think, well, what's going to happen if it really got serious? And, and she's, she, she is primed for the failure of the federal institution because she's been living with it and makes the point that this isn't just her, that there are local health officers who take their jobs less seriously and more seriously or feel more personally engaged with preventing communicable disease and less personally engaged. But the, her, the ones she thought the best in the state of California were all kind of like her. And we're all kind of frustrated with this, what was supposed to be the federal mechanism for helping them was, was actually become this federal mechanism from kind of, you know, mucking up things in the, in the heat of battle. Very good at generating the papers afterwards, writing the academic papers, very good at the intellectual exercise, but not good at actually fighting disease. And so when you see the specific stories, you come away thinking, you know, how, how did this happen? Like, like how did it, how did, and in particular, how did it have this incredible reputation for disease control? How did it earn that if it's like this? And it was, it was like this, a, a huge question that lurked in, in her mind. But, but when she starts to sense what's happening, and actually she starts to sense it at the end of December of 2019, incredibly, she is terrified and thinks we're going to be on our own the state of California is going to be on our own. She, she starts thinking about very early on about what are the plans for the state of California, because we can't expect help from the federal government. In, you sort of answer that question about how, how this could be with regard to the CDC, and yet it has this reputation for being the Centers for Disease Control and prevention. And there are a couple of things you point to, one being this culture where we do tend to, I think, as you put it, punish the people who try to save us from ourselves. But in addition to that, the very nature of a pandemic is to act when the dangers are not clear. Correct. Uh, can you talk about how that role and the CDC just don't mesh up? It's not, and it's not just the CDC, right? This is, I think, our. You get, it, this speaks to our entire federal bureaucracy. But um, the that you are, you're dealing. By the time you can generate sufficient public alarm, because you've got the deaths in front of you, you are looking at such old signals. You're, it's too late, right? You're, yeah. the, you're looking at the first death. You're looking at uh, is from an infection four or five weeks earlier. And the and in that in the interim, this thing has multiplied exponentially. So if if you're waiting for a death to be able to lead the people because you can point to it and say, "See, we should be scared," you're already it's already over. Yes. It, that you that you have to, as Carter Mesher put it, 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 he learned as he was kind of crafting the pandemic plan, and then as he was in the Obama White House, um, uh, thinking of dealing with the swine flu. Uh, pandemic in 2009, that you have to be kind of clairvoyant. You have to be able to, you really have to be a genius in looking for signals. Because, and you have to be prepared and, and, to be wrong. You know, that you're, you're going to have to make judgments in conditions of uncertainty. And then you have to persuade the public that those judgments are sound, even when sometimes they're going to be wrong. So the public has to be kind of in on it, right? They need to understand that we're playing a, we're, we're not, this is not, um, 
perfect science. This is like we're playing poker with a virus and we just we want to play our cards as smart as we can play our cards. And and so that you've got that going on. And at the same time, you've got this this drift in public institutions. And it's a drift that's occurred over generations and, and that the CDC in 1975 was headed by a career civil servant who the president just couldn't summarily fire. He had protections. The civil servant was not picked for his political affiliations. He was he was picked because he was thought to be good at his job. He was likely to stay in his job for a long time and so manage the institution in a very long-term way and had a sufficient distance from the political process where he could do brave things and had sufficient respect where he could stand up and explain to the public why he was doing them. And in 1976, there was, that, that person, his name was David Sensor, head of the CDC, made a mistake. It was, a, it was the mistake you would hope the CDC director would make, that there was a general consensus that we were about, we were about to succumb to a swine flu pandemic. And he, he recommended that, that we vaccinate the population. And there were really good reasons for doing it. There was, it was, there was a consensus. And he, the pandemic didn't come. The vaccine killed a few people and he was he, he was removed from his job. But there was then from that moment on, the there was this drift to the inevitable. And in the Reagan administration, the job was changed from a career civil service job to a presidential appointed job. And that's been a general drift in the government. Mm-hmm. And when you have all of it, then also all of a sudden, the person who's running that thing is is on a shorter leash from the White House, can be fired on a whim, is is a political creature in that he's there to please the president rather than control disease, and is quite likely there, is got a shorter term view because he's only going to be there as long as the president's there. He's not, he's not, he's more of a renter than a homeowner. And I think you could trace the drift in the CDC to that moment. Um, and and I think that, and, and it is a, an unfortunate institution to have that happen too, because of the nature of the of the risk it's managing right. it's it's such a it's such a wicked risk right let me go to caller graham in san francisco hi graham hi michael thanks for having me uh i, I completely agree with everything that you've said i'm an emergency physician here in san francisco um and i i think the the prior administration's politicization of the cdc um, and the NIH have caused probably, uh, maybe not permanent, but I think generational um, mistrust of the federal public health agencies that we really need people to trust and have probably only encouraged um, kind of anti-vaccination and conspiracy theories uh, because people don't feel that they can trust them anymore. Thank you. Graham, I, it's a, thanks. I love how he's thanking me for having him. Uh, because I don't think I had anything to do with it, but I really appreciate that comment. But but the but he said something. He he put his finger on the key word, which is trust. And it is absolutely true that to lead a country in a pandemic requires trust. And in particular, the way our our public health system, such as it is, is structured, because the CDC does not have a lever it can pull and 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 force everybody to do something. The CDC requires just buy-in from 3,000 local public health officers who are themselves dealing with their own political problems locally. So if you have any kind of wavering of faith in the institution, 
that, that you got, it will express itself in bad, in, it's not listening to the institution. So the, that, we pay a huge price for that mistrust. And I agree, the mistrust grows in part, it's not as simple as, but in part, out of the politicization of the, and the, of the job. And, and, and that, that in the CDC, instead of being at some remove from the White House, in, in a way, a bit like the Federal Reserve is a bit at some remove from the White House, it is, it's on a really short leash. And, um, and the, we're, at, we're at the mercy of just the caliber of the person in the White House and, and their willingness to endure political pain for the sake of, of that institution. And we had it when this disease struck someone who 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 didn't have didn't have much taste for that. No, we did not. Nancy writes at the end of February 2020, I had faith the pandemic would stay in China by early March. I knew it was coming. I feel very betrayed by our CDC that they didn't function the way they were supposed to. I still do not have faith in the CDC. Individuals saved our lives, not the government or our bureaucracy. I think she's. She's sort of underscoring what you're saying was lost the trust factor of it that you pointed to. Let me bring Teresa from Palo Alto into the conversation. Hi, Teresa. Thanks for calling. Hi, thank you for taking my call. Um, I just have a quick response to your question of how I felt when this all started to show up. And one was just I thought there was incredible amount of chaos and um, also a great deal of mistrust. With all of the firings and people quitting and all of that, I thought there is way more going on here than any of us know about. And so um, given the tone of our president at that time, I was not thinking that we were in very good hands for dealing with this. And I have always through the entire thing wondered why we don't have more focus on testing people, getting a good test to test people for the antibodies and finding out how that affects this whole thing. So getting shots is one thing. We know that it may not protect them the, the variants. We also know that there may be boosters needed. But what about people who may have natural immunity or who had COVID and have immunity? I wish that there was somewhere that we could go to find that out. So maybe there's some information out there. And I also want to say thank you so much for writing this book. I can't wait to dig into it. <laughs> well, thank you. Teresa, thanks for that. Uh, let me go to Barbara in San Francisco next. Hi, Barbara. Uh, hi, thank you for taking the call. On, on, on February 22nd of last year, I was involved in a close-up uh, diagnostic procedure. At that time, people weren't wearing masks, but they were wipe, wiping surfaces. Afterwards, I went to a restaurant where uh, there, were very, uh, there was very little business. I, I had my, my dinner, and the people, uh, despite all the space, seated uh, two people behind me. One of them was coughing violently, constantly, and I left as soon as I could get out of there because the, the ocean cruise ships had been coming in and going back out again. And I thought, uh-oh, mm -hmm. I've been listening to um, your program, your programs, and I'd been reading the Chronicle uh, religiously, and I thought, nope, the coronavirus is coming close by. So that was the day that I decided that I better be very careful, and by March 6th, I decided I'd do my last six errands in, in my a nearby neighborhood, and I put myself at home at that point, and mm. I've been there ever since. I'm in a high-risk uh, category, and I think I've saved myself from getting coronavirus. But here's the punchline. 
I felt as though I was totally on my own and I was not getting direction from the federal government about what was really going on. I had to connect my own dots and make a decision, but I'm still alive. Barbara, can I say say something? Yes, please. That that was eloquent. Is it Barbara? Think about that. She made gathering the data from her life. Yes. She made a call a day before Nancy Messier got up in Washington and said, oh, yeah, we need to start worrying about this. That, that, so my characters were like six weeks early, but it is amazing. And, but they were the they should have been running this thing in their world's authorities. But a person on the, on the streets who is a citizen who is exposed, who is in a high risk category, had to make this call by themselves. And they did it before the CDC helped them get there. And this underscores like the experience of Charity Dean as a local health officer. And I think it's probably true of like all the local health officers. She she was shot. The, the thing that the kind of mantra she had to tell herself whenever there was a crisis, whenever there's an outbreak of any kind of disease, it was nobody's coming to save me. Yes. I was going to say that exact same thing. That's exactly what Barbara made me think about was when you share in the book that Charity Dean is saying, nobody is coming to save you. This listener writes, it didn't have to be like this. Drumbeats were present years before at low volume, but the warnings were ignored and downplayed by the administration, mismanaged from the top down. Remember, quote, gone by Easter? We'll have more with Michael Lewis after the break. We're talking about his new book, The Premonition, A Pandemic Story, which looks at the federal government and CDC's response to the pandemic's early days and also the state government's response to the early days as well, which might have a few surprises for you. And we want to invite you, our listeners, to join us with your reactions to what you're hearing, your memories, and and your questions about the federal response. 866-733-6786 is the number. We'll get to more of your calls after the break. I'm Mina Kim. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Michael Lewis about people who saw the real dangers of the novel coronavirus before the rest of the country did. His book, The Premonition, takes a hard look at the Centers for Disease Control's unwillingness, essentially, to respond promptly and forcefully in the pandemic's early days. You, our listeners, are with us sharing your reflections and also your questions about the response. 866-733-6786 is the number. You can email us, forum at kqed.org, or post your thoughts on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. It really quickly, Michael Lewis, I wonder, because as I'm reading your book and you're talking about the CDC's failings, sort of the institutional failings, even when we were talking about this a moment ago, you were saying that so much of what paralyzed the CDC is something that paralyzes a lot of bureaucratic institutions. I couldn't help but but wonder, are you basically saying that regardless of the institution, you describe Donald Trump as a comorbidity, essentially, but um, do you think that ultimately things would have unfolded similarly, even with a different administration? It's a great question, right? And it's unanswerable. Uh, but, it, but so it's, I, I'm, 
you know, I, I, I would hesitate to, I, I just unsure about what would have happened, but I think what, but I, I look containing the virus, which is what charity Dean had a plan to do. Yes. Contained, as, yes, as yes. Australia contained the virus, as Cambodia contained the virus, um, perhaps it's harder in our society than it is in a lot of societies. So maybe that's maybe so, so it, it's, it's quite, I think they, all my, my, my characters would have said that was probably unlikely to happen given the state of our institutions. Um, but what, the, the counterfactual is really how well we mitigated it after we failed to contain it. Yes. And that, that we, if, if we just had done as well as the average of the G7 countries, there would be a couple of hundred thousand Americans alive today who are not. Hmm. Um, and wow. That's a pretty, that, that's not a very high bar. I mean, we, we had resources available to us that they didn't. I mean, you know, it was really interesting to me to see that before the pandemic, the, an outfit called the Nuclear Threat Initiative had had thrown a lot of resources, take, gathering together a lot of world experts and doing a lot of research to rank countries' pandemic preparedness. And the United States was ranked number one. Right. And, it, and, and you say, how can that be? You know, given that, given that we now have, what, 4% of the world's population and 20% of the deaths, how could that, how could we have been so catastrophically bad when we, and thought to be so, so exceptional before and um and the answer is that we have unbelievable resources to deal with this with this sort of threat we have you know more microbiology labs than anybody else we invented pandemic planning we had a plan um but but we've reached a state where we're like we're like catastrophically mismanaged and and it is i think it isn't just a president it's 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 decades of, of neglect of the federal government. It's decades of assault on the federal government. That it's, it's, an, it's an environment in, in the federal government where there's no, where you're, you're discouraged in extreme ways from taking risks and punished horribly for mistakes and not rewarded with upside uh, for doing something great. There's no like recognition culture in the federal government. And if you, so, so what, Silicon Valley company would survive or even start if with that, with those sort of incentives in place. And you kind of need the incentives of, uh, that, that you have in a, in a healthy private sector company, uh, in, or in the public sector in order to deal successfully with this kind of threat. Well, the other reason that I have wondered about whether or not things could have potentially unfolded similarly is because there's one point when, you know, Charity Dean is talking about the way that you contain, and again, I'm going to focus on the containment piece of this, was that you needed to make sure, you know, besides testing and contact tracing, you needed to have publicly available data showing who had it, where they were, you know, just like opening yourself up to, to basically, you know, a, a massive level of lack of privacy <laughs> compared to what we're used to, and so on and so forth. And if you think about the U.S.'s culture, our emphasis on individualism and individual freedom, could we really have contained it? I mean, I, I remember watching what was happening in Wuhan and thinking, if this comes here, 
America is not going to do what the the Chinese government is doing to its people. <laughs> yeah, but you know, uh, but Australia is not a repressive regime. Yes, this is why it I want to ask you your thoughts on that. Yeah, it has an advantage of being a massive island, uh, and and then and we are not. Uh, so th there there there's some disadvantages we had. We but. I think it's a canard to say, oh, it would have just kind of been the same because we wouldn't have contained it because yeah. because because short of containment, there are there there's a lot there are a lot better outcomes than what we had. Um, and so, so there's no question it could have been a lot better that there could have been a lot less illness and death. Um, and but you're, you're right. It would have required a kind of radical act of leadership uh, to contain it in this country. And, um, and perhaps we wouldn't have. And I don't think any of my characters would argue that, oh, for sure we would have. No, no one would argue that. Um, but we didn't even try. That's the amazing thing. We didn't even try to contain it. And, and that distinguishes, that, that, that separates us from a lot of countries. You know, a lot of countries took the, took the attitude that we can try to do this. And, and a bunch succeeded. We didn't even try. Hmm. Justin in San Francisco, join us. Hi, Justin. Hi. So I was traveling to Southeast Asia, Thailand, in January of 2020. And I had a friend who works in biotechnology on synthetic DNA stuff. And the end, he wanted to work on COVID testing kits later in the year. But he was on a call, he told me, in you know mid-January with some folks at the CDC, presumably lower-level folks, given his job. And he had asked them, you know, kind of just in joking at the end of his call, you know, should he go on this trip that we were planning out to Thailand? And they told him not to go. So I think huh. an important thing to note is not everyone at the CDC, you know, didn't know this was coming. Presumably, you know, I'm presuming these were the career scientists. They certainly knew it was coming. And when I, you know, went on that trip without him and was going through first Tokyo and then Bangkok, you know, in late January, every single person was wearing masks. You know, they had temperature checks going when I landed in Thailand, in Thailand to go through, you know, the visa process. So it's, it's, I find it, you know, kind of, you know, incredulous that, you know, we, people, some people here knew it was coming. The rest of the world seemed to know it was coming. And yet, you know, at the upper levels, nothing happened. You know, it turns out my friend was right and it's turned out to be a pandemic. But, you know, there were certainly people who knew early on and just, you know, presumably were drowned out. I mean, I, in, yeah, Michael Lewis, go ahead. Can I add to that? Because it was, it's, there was, it, it, this story was so rich that a lot of great stuff just wound up on the cutting room floor and never made it into the book. And there was an, there was a, an outtake um, that I reported in Cambodia uh, because one of the main characters, Joe DeRisi, who helps run the Chan Zuckerberg Biohub in San Francisco, right. um, was in early January in Cambodia helping the the, the Cambodians um, install, get to, get to know how to use um, the genomic technology that enables you to sequence the, the, the genomes of any new virus. And he was, he, he was setting up a, a sort of like a um, trigger alerts for any new pathogen. And, um, and then he leaves. He leaves them with the technology, comes back through the, uh, an airport in China where all of a sudden there are these fever boxes and people are on masks and a lot of military. And he's kind of like, what, what on earth? But but the Cambodians end up, at least up till now, kind of cont containing uh, the virus. And you, if you go and ask, how did you do this? One answer is the technology that Joe DeRisi supplied us with has been very helpful. 
Another answer is the CDC guy on the ground there, a guy named Michael Kinzer, was fabulous. That he was behaving in ways that the CDC people here were not. And that, that, and I think that the caller points to some, an interesting maybe truth. I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't finish the story, but, and the maybe truth is, I think the CDC functions better outside of the United States than it does inside the United States. That, that mm-hmm. has a respect and a trust with foreign governments that it doesn't have here and which is an intriguing kind of situation um but in any case uh yes there were people in the cdc i'm sure who knew uh but they didn't say anything well this listener writes in january 2019 i could tell something big was coming i thought the government would stop us from traveling overseas as soon as things got serious but they didn't so i traveled to central america in february on my trip i checked the disease numbers in china every day and was astounded to see the numbers soar when COVID hit italy i knew we were in big trouble and my country was doing nothing it was unbelievable i'm not a health expert just an average person i think this person meant january 2020. this listener writes initially frustrated disbelief in the response from the administration led by one whose contempt for structure and organization are legendary gave way to despair as I watched Dr. Fauci undermined week in and week out. Ravi tweets, does his research, meaning you, Michael Lewis, look into how the response to COVID compared to other historical responses to global health crises? I'm thinking mostly of the HIV AIDS early days. Compared to other historical responses, did you... Did your research look into that? I didn't. I didn't really look into that. The book doesn't go into that. But there is like the. I think we're all here in general agreement. We didn't do well. There isn't, and and the question is why we didn't do well. Yes. And it's and and why we may might have done well in other situations. And there is a you know the the people who have an incredibly insightful new view into that question are. Are the people at the at the Chan Zuckerberg Biohub? Because when the CDC failed to produce a test that worked, they quickly spun up what was in this area the fastest, biggest COVID testing lab, and they were trying to give it out for free. They were they were we were moving around California, talking to local health officials anywhere that you might test for uh, for COVID, and saying, "Look, we've got we've got this thing. You can have it for free," and they found a level of um, destitution in these institutions, a level of poverty that was just shocking to them. One of them, one of the uh, Biohub employees, a fellow named David Dinnerman, who spent his early years, childhood in, in, in communist Poland, said that um, what I saw reminded me of communist Poland. It was, it felt like a failed state because we couldn't, we couldn't, the, these people we were trying to help they had so little. They didn't have the. They didn't. They. They. You know. They didn't have fax machines. We could fax the test results to. We had to buy them fax machines, kind of thing. But, right. But but he said. But the. But he said that they didn't even know how to use help because they they had never been given help, uh, and it was. Um, so you're, I think. So the the answer to the question of like how badly we've responded to these sort of health crises, is is it's at least partly that we have not supplied the resources to the mechanism for response. And then you ask, why not? Well, I, I think the short answer is prevention doesn't pay. Uh, that that there, there's, there's, no, there's, there's no advocate for prevention or the advocate for prevention is 
quiet compared to the advocate for profits. Disease pays. You know, you spend, you can, you can get, make a lot of money treating sick people. You can make a lot of money testing, uh, but you, but pre actual prevention um, doesn't pay. And I think that's, that's like a problem with our medical industrial complex it is it under provides for things that don't pay, but that make a lot of sense. We're talking with Michael Lewis. His book is The Premonition, A Pandemic Story, taking a hard look at the CDC's response to the pandemic's early days. 866-733-6786 if you want to join the conversation. Forum at kqed.org is our email address. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Let me go to Gina in Aptos. Hi, Gina. Hi, how are you today? Thank you for having me. So in late December 2019 and early January, I had heard about this virus, something that was going on in China, as the ophthalmologist had, uh, you know, discovered. And it was not a widespread mainstream news. However, it was a simple Google search. Some news media did have it out that was easily accessible. I'm not a techie. I, I'm not a social media guru. So it was out there. And even at that time, I knew that the virus, and on New Year's Eve, in fact, I decided to stay home, that virus was here. With air travel, it's only 24 hours to get around the world. So I had no doubt that it was already in the U.S., particularly the Bay Area. I'm in California. Um, what I'd like to comment on and get your thoughts are is that with the new or current double mutant virus in India that we are all aware of, why has not the CDC and the U.S. government shut down travel? The they are saying they are. However, people from India can still get to Brazil, to South America, and the borders between South America and the United States are wide open for air travel. People are, are going on vacation in record numbers, and it's a disaster waiting to happen. Well, Gina, let me get Michael Lewis's reaction generally to what you are, are saying here. Um. My first thought is, why, are, why aren't we shutting down, isn't why aren't we shutting down travel of the borders? It's why aren't we testing, you know, s testing for any kind of mutations? That why, why is it, we have this new technology. It's an unbelievable virus hunting technology, gen genomic sequencing. Um, that, that why aren't we sequencing the positives of, of all the viruses we find to see, to, to, to detect any kind of variant. And it, there's a little bit of it going on, but it's very haphazard. Um, and that's how you kind of, that's how you control um, variants. And, but we, we aren't. So her, yes. her general worry and despair, I share about yes. a, a little bit. I think also, as I listen to Gina's comment and what you're saying too, Michael Lewis, is just a reminder that we still don't know how this is going to end. And I wonder, based on everything that you've learned and that we've learned, so far at least, about how this has been handled, have, have the institutions, have we learned anything through this experience that gives you hope for our yes. ability to handle this going so, forward. Yes. So it's a funny thing. I don't want to end on a hopeless note because I didn't feel hopeless when I was writing it. I think I didn't feel hopeless because, yeah, so we're this team that was supposed to 
win this game. We were ranked number one before the season. The games happen. We lose all our games. You walk into the locker room and you say, like, why? And one answer you don't get is we aren't that good. Like, we don't have the talent. That, that the characters show you that we have unbelievable talent, unbelievable resources, every sort of resource. And that we, we are, what we are is disorganized. We're like poorly coached, badly managed. And, um, and it's, I think, so this is, you know, don't ask me for a lot of evidence. Am I allowed <laughs> to have an opinion without evidence? Right, here's my opinion without evidence. My opinion without evidence is that the culture is shifting. And you can see it in what the Biden administration is able to get away with in, in what they're doing, that they're able to lead with a pretty full throated support of the institutions of government. They're not kind of they're not kind of operating from a defensive crouch and the culture seems to be with them. I think enough people have been touched by this tragedy that it's jarred us. And I think it's jarred us sufficiently into a place where nobody wants to do this again. And uh and it's always going to be messy fixing public institutions. But I think I think we will. I think we will because of the trauma of the event. Michael Lewis, his book is The Premonition. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Thanks for having me. Forum is produced by Ariana Prell, Blanca Torres, Grace One, and Caroline Smith. Susan Britton is lead producer. Our interim senior editor is Judy Campbell. Our engineers are Danny Bringer and Katie Murren. Our interns are Katie McMurrin. Our interns are Leslie Torres and Kimia Akbari. Our executive editor is Ethan Tobin Lindsay. Thanks to Caroline Smith for producing today's segment. I'm Mina Kim. Have a great weekend. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation, and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.